this week, the Comics Guys explain the history of DC, part three. Explain this. Welcome everyone back. I'm Steve Tasker here with Darren Watts. How you doing? And when we last left off, we were at the birth of the Silver Age in the uh, mid-1950s. And so, Darren, DC kind of has a monopoly on the Silver Age at the beginning here, right? Certainly in the world of superheroes. They are the first people to, uh, you know, kind of like bring superheroes back starting in 1956. And it's several years before anybody else kind of, you know, catches up with them. At this point, you remember from previous episodes, we talked about Erwin Donenfeld is the guy running the company at this point. He is the son of Harry Donenfeld. And his editor-in-chief is Julius Schwartz. And uh, Julie Schwartz uh, and Mort Weisinger had been partners uh, in a literary agency back in the 30s where they had repped uh, sci-fi writers to pulps and magazines and that sort of thing. And that's kind of how they got involved in editing and working in comics because several of the writers that they had repped, like Alfred Bester and a few other people, had taken jobs writing comics, particularly for DC. So they had both been there kind of in-house at that point from the 40s into the 50s, which meant that they had been there during the stretch when superheroes were not a big deal in comics, right? They were uh, doing a lot of horror. They were doing a lot of sci-fi. They were doing a lot of romance, westerns, that kind of thing. Superheroes had kind of fallen off as a, uh, as a genre. But Julie knew that they had continued to own all of these characters. Superman was still getting published and still making money. Batman was still getting published and making money. So it's not like they had gotten out of superheroes entirely. They were pretty much the only people who were still doing any superheroes at all. And so uh, Julie Schwartz and Gardner Fox, who was uh, one of their top writers, came up with the idea. And John Broom also was uh, involved in this as well. Kind of like came up with the idea that it was time to bring back and modernize the characters that they already owned the rights to, right? Nobody had read, there hadn't been a Flash comic in six or seven years at this point. The character was pretty much forgotten. And this was a time, remember, when everybody assumed that the average age of their readership was like eight to 12, right? So there was no reason to think that any of the kids today had heard of a character that was seven years old at that point, or it had been seven years since they'd heard from him, and that all of those kids who had read them had all grown up and stopped reading comics by now. I didn't realize uh, Jay Garrick wasn't a very popular Golden Age hero. Well, he was for during that stretch. He just was one of the ones who kind of like died along the way, right? I mean, gotcha. he, was, uh, he was still in the Justice Society up until 1949, 1950, when that ended. Hmm. And so was Alan Scott. So were all of the other, you know, Golden Age characters. But one at a time, they all kind of like fell off. Their individual titles were canceled, that sort of thing. They just stopped. They stopped appearing, basically. And really, during that run of the 50s, the only people who stayed constant was Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and then Superboy as well. Between those four, you know, kind of like each of those were the were the leads of at least one in Superman and Batman's case two each comics. So they had a total of, you know, six superhero titles that were running. Gotcha. And uh, so they decided to uh, start with The Flash because like you say, Jay Garrick was kind of probably the next biggest thing you know, the, the, the most popular character who hadn't survived, right? Right. 
And the idea of a super fast character is really interesting. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to tell cool stories about, you know, so they decided they would start with a new Flash, but he was going to be this kind of like modern character for the 50s, right? Like Jay Garrick looked kind of old fashioned style, right? With his hat, and his jodhapurs and everything and his, you know, his, his outfit was not very modern. I love his metal helmet. It's like so do I. one of my favorite. Oh, I love the style of it. Yeah. yeah. But you can certainly kind of like see, you know, shouldn't a guy who moves at super speed have like a streamlined costume? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Right? He's got a whole bunch of extra, you know, fabric and everything. And how does he keep his hat on when he runs a million miles an hour? <laughs> right. I mean, all, none of that makes any sense. So instead they designed a character who looks like he's from the rocket age, right? Like right. he is totally modernized. His costume is sleek. He's got lightning bolts. He's got, you know, the, the things on his ears. His costume fits into his ring. You know, they basically Barry Allen is just like the hero of today of 1956, back when today was 1956, right? He's a scientist. He works for the police department. So they try him out in showcase and it's a hit. And, you know, within a few months after that, they restart Flash Comics. They even keep the same numbering from the Jay Garrick run, right? Like there's no Barry Allen Flash number one. The first appearance of Barry Allen in a Flash comic starts in number 105, you know, because they just picked up the numbering again. So when that worked, when that was a success, they immediately looked at the rest of their line and said, okay, who's next? What are we going to do? How are we going to modernize the rest of these characters? And in very short succession, they do Green Lantern as Hal Jordan. They do the Atom as Ray Palmer. And they do Hawkman now as an alien from the bizarre planet Thanagar or something, instead of just a guy who was like a resurrected, you know, Egyptian pharaoh or whatever. Uh, and they make... The first right, many, yeah, exactly. many uh, origin reboots. Exactly. Unfortunately for it, but the you know the the Thanagar stuff was at least fun. Yeah. But each of those characters like takes a character and and sciences him up because it's 1956 to 1960 that this is happening, right? This is you know, all of these characters are scientists in their secret identities. All of them are given very kind of science fictiony settings and things to do. Uh, as you know, like what it is they're doing, like Green Lantern is no longer, I don't have a magic ring, you know, for us. I have a weapon that was given to me as a space policeman by the guardians of the galaxy. And I fly around in space and there's aliens. And I'm part of a whole core of, uh, you know, of Green Lanterns and everything creates that entire backstory for him. That's really kind of stolen from the lensman as a hardcore science fiction, you know, concept from, uh, from Doc Smith. And Gardner Fox is basically writing all of these, or most of them at this point, uh, pretty much single-handedly. And he had been writing for them since 1939. He knew how to do superhero stuff. And very early on uh, in that set, he starts doing, he, he tells them, well, we've got enough of these guys now. We've got Superman and Batman. Uh, we've got still got Green Arrow and Aquaman left over from the Golden Age because they had been backups to Superboy in Adventure Comics. In Detective Comics, they had the Martian Manhunter had been introduced in this time for it as a backup character to Batman and then Wonder Woman. And now you add all of these kind of like new created characters in for this. They need to have a team the way the Justice Society team. And so Gardner Fox creates the Justice League, which somehow now sounds more modern and, you know, 50s style as a name rather than the justice society right society sounded too polite we're a league we are you know 
but basically doing the same kinds of stories that the Justice Society has done. And so this works pretty much across the board. I mean, like nobody that none of their reboots were ever quite as successful as Barry Allen was, but they were all successful in their own way. And then Justice League started and Justice League outsold all of them, right? Like seeing all of the heroes in this Justice League was even outselling Superman and Batman at that point. So, you know, these, this became a, a, a new focus, you know, for, uh, for what DC was going to be doing. DC kind of like stops doing so many Westerns. Most of their romance line gets cut. They keep some of the sci-fi stuff for a while, but then that kind of starts to go away too because superheroes becomes more and more dominant. Each new superhero they're introducing is more and more popular. Um, and it takes about five years for anybody else to even consider rivaling them. And the, famously, the one who does is Stan Lee creates Marvel Comics. And the story supposedly goes that Martin Goodman, who was Stan's boss at what was then called Atlas Comics, had uh, lunch and a golf match with Donenfeld, with Erwin Donenfeld, um, in which Donenfeld told Goodman how much money they were making off of the Justice League. And Goodman, after like hearing those numbers, basically came back to his office that afternoon and ordered Stan Lee to create a superhero team. And Stan, you know, was delighted. Stan loved superheroes, couldn't be happier to, you know, be ordered to do this, calls up Jack Kirby and the two of them basically sit down and create the Fantastic Four right there. And that's the beginning of the Marvel Age starts in 1961. Uh, with the creation of the Fantastic Four. Within a few months after the Fantastic Four, which once again is a huge hit, then, you know, he adds uh, the Hulk and Spider-Man and Thor and Doctor Strange, all of these, you know, like additional new characters start to show up. And now there's a rivalry again. Now DC's got a rivalry uh, in the superhero market. At the same, once once again, in the next uh, few months after that, other comic book publishers try to duplicate what, DC and Marvel are doing. And that's when you get titles like Charlton, when you get titles like the MLJ attempted comeback. These are things that we've talked about in other episodes where, you know, like kind of third, third tier, third party publishers were trying to kind of like ride on the success that uh, DC and Marvel were having and don't really have, none of them ever really kind of come close, right? It's kind of like there's a, there's two people at the top of the industry and and, and a whole lot of, uh, you know, smaller companies below them. Marvel, because Stan Lee is so good at self-promotion and that sort of thing, very quickly kind of gets a reputation for being within this kind of like trashy idiom, this, this, this medium of comics, of being the smarter one, right? Of being the one that's a little more for grown-ups. College kids are into what, right? Like the, you know, the Fantastic Four is funny. Spider-Man is funny. Uh, Doctor Strange is cosmic and trippy and everything, um, whereas Julie Schwartz over at DC is still putting out the same kind of comics that they had been doing all through the 40s and 50s. And the kind of stories, what they were willing to allow their characters to do and allow as uh, material was considered much more childish, much more for kids, which isn't really fair to DC. What's fair to say is that certainly what DC's popular stuff was at this point was much more aimed at kids. They would never dare to have their Justice League fight with each other the way the Fantastic Four did, right? They wouldn't insult each other. They're all, they have to, the Justice League are all best friends. They have to, 
Um, the Justice League are all just pretty much straight up good guys. They have very little difficulty in their lives and secret identities. They never have any questions about whether they're doing the right thing the same way that like, say, Spider-Man is. You know, Spider-Man kind of like changed the way that stories were being told. And so Marvel kind of picked up this reputation of being the smarter and more grown up of the two in this rivalry. That's not really fair to some of the more interesting stuff that DC was doing at this time. As they go through the 60s, you have writers at DC who come on board, like Arnold Drake, Nick Cardi, people like that, you know, come on and start doing things like Doom Patrol, what else, uh, Teen Titans at that point, Hawk and Dove by uh, Steve Ditko, that sort of thing. They had some kind of like Marvel style storytelling, but unfortunately for DC, those never worked. Those were all always kind of second, third tier titles. That's an attitude that I think is even kind of like, I've heard that attitude from people even today that they feel like Marvel is more like, I don't know. Right. Mature is probably the wrong word, but just weird more towards an older audience, um, which is right. Like, and once again, I mean, mature within a medium that's kind of trashy to start out with. Right. Yeah. And yeah, but that's a, that's a, you know, reputation that began 50, 60 years ago. Right. And it's very hard for either side of it to shake now, even though it's, you know, the considerably, uh, well, first of all, because there's a great, a great deal more crossover. Right. I mean, like Marvel had its writers, DC had its writers for the most part. These were two entirely separate groups. So the styles that they worked with and, and were doing for a while remained very kind of different. Right. Like what Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko were doing at Marvel was very different from what Mort Weisinger was doing at DC. Right. Or what Gardner Fox was doing at DC, because those guys came from a different tradition. So over the 60s. From a business perspective, DC, you know, continues to is continuing to make a fairly serious amount of money for the Donenfelds. The Donenfelds are remain very wealthy. Uh, Irwin has uh, retired. Harry has retired to you know live in Connecticut and run a yachting marina, yachting club, or something. And they are they take the company. National Periodicals goes public in 1961, the same year that Marvel starts and like joins the field as a rival is the year that NPP first kind of like offers stock. And as a public company, you know, their, their records are public, that kind of thing. They are clearly, you know, like bringing in a fair amount of cash. And then over the course of the 60s, the main thing that kind of uh, uh, changed for them, of course, is the arrival of the Batman TV show. Now, bam, bam, pow. Wow. Superman had had a TV show. And that had lasted for quite a while, and that was that was pretty successful. And that certainly was a pop culture thing in the 50s, right? But the Batman TV show was a hit on a level that DC had experienced before to start. And it only lasted for, you know, a few months that it was this kind of level of hipness, right? Um, it very much drew a, kind of like the, the cultural zeitgeist at the time was very much into camp was very much into that kind of like silliness, that almost kind of like borderline gay, you know, sense of humor, right? Like this is the, this is the world in which, you know, like Paul Lind is a superstar, right? Kind of thing. And so the sheer earnestness of the Adam West Batman portrayal and the, all of the, you know, silliness of the character being taken dead seriously uh, for humorous effect was for a moment in 1966, 1967, literally the number one thing on the planet, right? Like this was the, 
the, the biggest TV show with the biggest ratings. It was on twice a week uh, on TV for it because it was so incredibly popular that once a week was not was not enough to you know like fill the fill the crowd, right? Um, which is why so many of those first season episodes are two parters, right? Is because they were literally being broadcast on like Monday and Thursday, or it was during the week, right? So the Monday one would always end on a cliffhanger. And this show is insanely popular. And of course, the show being insanely popular affects the comics, right? Like now suddenly Batman in the comics has to be like the Batman on TV, right? And so the, the editorial choices that the comics are making becomes much campier and much kind of sillier. The Teen Titans are now fighting bad guys who are surfers and, you know, drag racers and whatever else, right? Like it's, you know, that's the, the mad mod becomes their main bad guy. And so the entire line of DC Comics in the 60s, in the late 60s, kind of goes silly almost, right? It's everything is played for comedy. Everything is played for laughs at a time when Marvel is getting very kind of like deep and serious and is dealing with social issues and, you know, uh, dealing with like just the trippy Dr. Strange stories and that kind of thing for the, the like this, the Ditko and then post Ditko uh, druggy influenced stuff for it that's going on at Marvel. It's almost like the two are not even doing the same kinds of story types anymore. And so National has now been public for several years. They've become a target. They've become uh, big corporations become interested in the kind of money that they're generating. Now, there was a company at the time that was called Kinney National. And Kinney uh, is literally, it's the shoe store company, right? Kinney Shoes, who had also at that point kind of like begun a corporate expansion uh, and were buying things all over, you know, were buying up other companies, turning and creating kind of like a conglomerate of businesses. And so they uh, bought a company that owned parking lots all over New York and New Jersey. They owned funeral parlors. They were a car rental service. They had office cleaning and stuff like that. This is uh, Steve Ross is the guy who is kind of the, you know, corporate head of Kinney at this point and is just kind of expanding the line completely without regard to kind of company. He just wanted stuff that was making money. And one of the things he bought that was making money first was Mad Magazine. He had bought Mad Magazine in 1963 from William Gaines. And Mad Magazine was tre tremendously popular, uh, very successful, has a magazine. And basically talking to Gaines and other people first, realized how profitable National was, how profitable DC was. What would the, you know, they've got the Batman show. It's the number one show on TV. They've got Superman, they've got Wonder Woman, they've got Justice League. All of these things are making money. So Kinney buys National outright in 1967. And suddenly DC has gone from this kind of like small operation that fit in one office with 10, 15, 20 employees, or basically run by mobsters to an operation that is now a part of a big multinational corporation. And it very much kind of changed the, the attitude of the company, the tone of the company kind of changes at this point. Kinney owns uh, talent agencies. It owns a couple of movie producers, defunct movie producers, and starts uh, kind of looking at trying to get the DC properties into television and movies even more so to duplicate the success that they had with Batman, which they didn't own, right? Like Batman, they had had to kind of like license out as a character. And they were thinking, well, you know, geez, we're paying an awful lot of those profits are going to people other than us 
for the Batman TV show, we'd very much like that to be all of it coming to us, right? And so uh, in 1969, Kinney buys Warner Brothers as a defunct movie producer. Warner Brothers had stopped making movies. The Warners didn't have anything to do with Warner Brothers. The original Warners didn't have anything to do with Warner Brothers anymore. And Warner Brothers was basically a defunct company that hadn't put out a movie in two years. And Kinney bought it really cheap and started to put more money into it and bring people on board. At the same time, uh, in 1972, the Indian parking industry had a big scandal about price fixing that Kinney was being investigated by government agencies, very, you know, the FBI and a couple of things about like scandals for us. And so in the middle of the scandal, Kinney spun off all of the non-entertainment stuff that they had, the, the funeral parlors and the parking lots and the car rentals and everything. They turned that into a separate company, spun it off and sold it because they had decided we're in the entertainment business now. This is what we do. And they changed the name outright to Warner Communications, of which both DC and Mad Magazine are now parts of. Now, the Batman insanity only lasted for maybe a year, right? Within, by the end of its first season, even, it's no longer the number one show on TV. The joke was over, right? Like it's, you know, we'd we, we, we done that, been there, done that. And though Batman lives on for a total of three seasons, the second and third seasons are not nearly as good. Uh, they don't have the money that they did, uh, you know, for the first season. The show is just not the smash that it was. The stars that they're getting are not, you know, kind of like the high quality ones they were getting to start out with. And so it kind of, you know, it, it, it peters out at the end, by the end of it. And by the end of it, they're all, everybody in kind of vaguely embarrassed at how silly things had gotten, you know. And kids no longer thought silly Batman was cool, right? Like silly Batman was something that was, was for little kids, right? Not us serious 12-year-olds who are, you know, deeply into comics. <laughs> and Julie Schwartz, to his credit, recognizes that and says, you know what? We have to save Batman. Batman has been damaged so badly by this, by this, you know, like as the, by, by what we've done to him as a character, by making fun of him so much for this. Nobody takes him seriously as a character anymore. And so Dick Giordano, who had been the guy in charge, gets hired to come over to D.C. And one of the first things he does is bring over Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams and put them on Batman. And suddenly Batman is dark and brooding and mysterious. And Robin has pissed off and gone to college. And they've moved from the Batcave into Gotham City, where they live in the Wayne Foundation building. Makes more sense. Like, a, you know, a super billionaire should live in a, you know, in a penthouse. Uh, you know, skyscraper, not in a, you know, bucolic little uh, uh, mansion outside of town, right, kind of thing. And he makes Batman more urban and much more, uh, you know, concerned with solving crimes and dealing with these kind of like dark, gritty situations. Uh, and that's kind of the beginning of yet another kind of like style change for DC, right? Around the same time, the uh, Julie Schwartz brings over Jack Kirby and Schwartz offers... Jack Kirby, a large amount of money uh, to come over from his exclusive deal over at Marvel to come work at DC. And between 1970 and 19 at, at DC, Kirby basically creates Dead Man, The Demon, Commandy, and most notably, all of the new gods, Darkseid, all of those characters, right? Uh, Mr. Miracle, everything for the new gods, right? That's a, that's a five-year stretch of just unparalleled creativity. Um, 
most of which doesn't sell terribly well, unfortunately, but that pretty much everybody kind of recognizes today are some of the most influential and important comics, superhero comics ever made. Um, even though at the time, pretty much everybody was disappointed at how poorly uh, some of that stuff sold. Around this time of Marvel drug issues uh, that led to the Comics Code, this is when uh, Adams and Danny O'Neill are writing Green Lantern, Green Arrow and do the Snowbirds Don't Fly stories, right? Like the whole uh, Speedy is a heroin addict stories come out in the early 70s. So clearly DC is going through, you know, like some serious changes as to, as to what it is that they're doing. So uh, Warner Brothers under Ross at this point has become uh, very successful as a movie studio as well. They've become, uh, you know, like a theatrical success at this point. Warner Brothers over this stretch of time that we've been talking about of the early to mid 70s does Blazing Saddles, Deliverance, Towering Inferno as movies. Those are all tremendously successful. They buy and then kind of like recreate Electra Records. So they've got, you know, major recording artists. They buy Atari, form a partnership with the Japanese company, bring Atari to America, and basically are there kind of at the beginning of, you know, the video game, you know, industry being created. It's around this time that Warner Brothers buys and kind of rehabilitates and, and refurbishes Six Flags, you know, amusement parks. So Warner Brothers is this massive operation that's making a lot of money for everybody of which DC at this point has just become kind of like a relatively small part, right? It's a, it's a, you know, relatively minor percentage of like the great Warner Brothers massive operation. Jeanette Kahn is hired in 1976 to come in and be the publisher uh, for this. Carmen Infantino had been the publisher for a bit. You know, they had gone through several kind of like temporary ones after Julie Schwartz stepped down full-time as the publisher to just kind of like be an editor and also kind of, you know, goodwill ambassador for DC at this point, because he was getting pretty old. He was in his 60s at this point. Jeanette Kahn is this kind of hot young executive in that, you know, she was considered uh, a very kind of like exciting young. She wasn't even 30 yet at the time that she came in to take over running DC on behalf of Warner Brothers. If you remember Dynamite magazine and a couple of other kind of like kids magazines in the 70s, she had been the publisher of those. And she already knew the comics business because Dynamite had had a distribution partnership uh, with Marvel Comics before that. So she knew how the comic business worked before she came in. And so she comes in in 1976 and DC as a brand kind of changes with her, right? Like one of the first things she does is kind of update the brand. Uh, the company is no longer national. National is not a name that they use. National Periodicals is not a name that they use. Everything is now under DC. And they create the bullet logo for the first time, uh, which appears on every comic, you know, just the DC star inside the circle kind of thing. And she very much compared to everybody who had worked before is a creator's rights advocate, right? Like she's very much interested in uh, making sure that writers and artists are paid reasonably well for this, have the rights to their um, artwork, that sort of thing participate when a character that they have created, even if they create something as work for hire, they get royalties if the character is successful, if the character appears in uh, a TV show or a movie or something like that, to make sure that the uh, creators involved get a piece of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is something that had been, you know, was one of the reasons that Kirby winds up leaving them is that they won't give in his art, right? Before this, after he, uh, you know, sends it in. And 
the world of fandom in the mid to late seventies is becoming a thing, right? Conventions are a thing. And, and so uh, for artists not to have access to their own original art, to be able to sell after the fact, that's a lot of money that they're leaving on the table, right? Like indie artists and that kind of thing, people who actually like do have deals to own their rights uh, to, to their artwork can go to comic book shows, go to comic book conventions and sell that stuff for it. DC uh, before Jeanette Kahn was not letting anybody do that. If you drew something for DC, DC owned it and they would just keep it in a warehouse, mm. right? It's not, like they, it's not like they were making money off of it. They weren't, they'd never occurred to them to actually participate in the convention seen. So all of that stuff was just sitting in boxes in a warehouse that nobody could get to until Jeanette Kahn came along and kind of started to change the corporate culture of the operation to realize, you know, this is part of how artists make their money now, how you make a living. And so she kind of notoriously has a big push in 1978. She's now been with the company for a year and a half or whatever and says, it's time, we're gonna do a big new thing. We're gonna create a whole bunch of brand new characters. We're gonna bring in a whole bunch of new uh, writers and artists, and we're gonna give people the complete freedom to do whatever they want. We're gonna steal a bunch of Marvel's people for this. We're gonna have Jerry Conway come over and start writing for it this time. Uh, Conway famously had been the Spider-Man writer through most of, much of the 70s. He's the guy who killed Gwen Stacy. Mm -hmm. You know, He was a big name writer for this. Having him come over to DC was a big deal. Uh, you know, they had done this, and that was called, they were promoting it very heavily as the DC explosion, right? There's a whole bunch of new titles are going to come out in 1978 that will do this. This goes extremely badly, <laughs> right? The economy kind of goes into the toilet. This is kind of the end of the Carter administration. This is why, you know, this is what gets Reagan elected is the incredibly bad economy that all of this is happening in. Retailers across the board for, uh, you know, the, the kind that DC are relying on, which is, you know, like grocery stores and bookstores and pharmacies and things like that, where they actually have their newsstand sales, all are suffering tremendously. They all basically stopped buying. It didn't really have that much to do with the quality of the titles that DC was putting out, as much fun as people made of them later. Some of the characters that were created in the DC explosion are well-loved today, right? Firestorm was one of them. Vixen was one of them, right? A number of like kind of interesting characters came out of the DC explosion, but within a year, year and a half, almost all of those got canceled. Almost all of those just kind of like got wiped off the board and people were making fun of DC at that point for the idea of the DC explosion. Like artists and writers were calling it the DC implosion where, you know, like this just mass uh, number of titles on the stands just was cut in half or worse uh, and DC had to do a bunch of layoffs. And so in 7879, suddenly DC doesn't look so good, right? Like Warner Brothers is looking at DC saying, what, you know, everything that we're doing is making you guys. What's wrong with you? What's your, what's the problem? And maybe Jeanette Kahn isn't as smart as we thought she was. You know, maybe she's not doing such a great job with this. And so they are, you know, considering what to actually do about this. That's when Superman the movie hits. Right, they've been building up to this for a couple of years. They had given, they had licensed Superman to the Salkins, to the Salkin brothers, um, to make a movie for them that would be put out as a, you know, as a Warner Brothers uh, uh, movie, and with Christopher Reeve and you know, Margaret Kidder, the whole cast, and Gene Hackman as Luther, et cetera. All of that. that comes out in time for Christmas of 1978. 
and basically saves the company, right? It makes so much money, is such a tremendous success that Warner Brothers no longer wonders why they have this comic book. And if they realize that really what is important to them at this point is not how many individual comics DC sells anymore, right? Comic sales are great. We'd like to make money on them. This is a thing that we're, you know, continue to do for us. But what DC Comics is for us is an intellectual property farm, right? This is where characters are created. This is where characters are generated. Some of those characters will go on to be successful and make us money on scales that comic books can't even imagine, right? The most successful comic book that has ever existed doesn't isn't a fraction of what you can make with a hit movie, right? right? A hit movie will make you money on a scale that like, they can't even process it's exactly what we're seeing with marvel right now exactly well that's a, that's what i'm saying that's a that's a philosophical change that like warner brothers is one of the first to make yeah. right eventually everybody will start believe we'll start understanding this we'll start believing this and marvel will you know start behaving that way it's going to take them really until the 90s to figure that out yeah but warner brothers gets it in the late 70s they look at superman and they're like it doesn't matter if superman's comics make money because that's not where we make money on superman Right. And so, of course, they make three more Superman movies over the course of the next eight years. Plus, they make a Supergirl movie. Two of those make a fair amount of money anyway. Right. So that becomes, you know, like a cash cow. And of course, they start looking at other ways that they can turn their character ideas, their character concepts into properties in other media. Jim Shooter at Marvel has become is the editor in chief over at Marvel. Jim Shooter is a very smart man. He was a very successful writer. He is, shall we say, extremely difficult to get along with personally for a number of people. And so a lot of Marvel's top creators in the late 70s, early 80s were not happy working for him. And uh, Jeanette Kahn and Paul Levitz, who had kind of become her second in command over at DC, started figuring out ways that they could steal more people from Marvel. Gene Conway had come over already for us, but uh, Gary Conway had come over at this point, but other people were still considering it, right? And one of the things that they did was stopped paying their writers and artists flat page rates, which is what they had been. Instead, they get a flat page rate plus a percentage of sales. They got royalties on individual sales of titles for this, which was a thing that Marvel wouldn't offer there. So within a couple of, within maybe say six months, 79 and 80 of this happening, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Roy Thomas, Gene Colan, bunch of big names at Marvel, people who had been key people in kind of like creating Marvel the way it was to that point, come to DC because DC is just offering more cash. It, it's a straight up very easy decision to make. You know, for the same amount of work, I can make half again as much money working at DC as I was making at Marvel. Perez and Wolfman, of course, the first kind of like really big thing that they do at DC is create the new Teen Titans which gives DC a comic hit, again, on the, the first one that they've had for, for new characters, certainly post the uh, DC implosion, right? And, and really kind of like going back before that, the first kind of like new characters that were exciting people that were generating merchandise sales. You've got Starfire, you've got Cyborg, you've got Raven, Beast Boy, all of these characters, you know, that were suddenly kind of like generating more cash for DC. DC is experimenting with a bunch of things for a lot of, in a lot of ways, DC was kind of like the, really the more interesting of the two kind of rivals at this point, they invent the limited series. They say, you know what? It doesn't make sense 
that we always have to kind of like plan that our titles are going to go on indefinitely. If I've got a story that could be told in six issues or eight issues or 12 issues or whatever, let's just tell everybody at the beginning that that's as far as it's going to go and we'll stop it when it's done. This is a brand new idea for comic books. You know, you know nobody in, it's not a brand new idea for indies, but it's a brand new idea for mainstream comics. And so World of Krypton, which is a limited series that DC creates in 1979 as part of the whole Superman, you know, kerfuffle, the whole kaboom of the movies, they create a series to tell the stories of Jor-El and Lara on Krypton, you know, before Krypton blows up and before they shoot Superman off in space, baby Superman into space. Uh, World of Krypton is the first limited series to be advertised as to go a, you know, set number of issues and stop like they intended it to. Hmm. That's a hit. That's a success. And DC now feels very kind of like free to start experimenting with stuff that, you know, they wouldn't have considered before. Now that they've proven that limited series can be a thing, they can start doing all kinds of weird things. The, the uh, big one that I remember from the time for when was Camelot 3000 uh, by Mike Barr and that crap uh, for it was once again, a completely, you know, new self-contained story that was partially creator owned. He had great royalty rates on making it for it. And, you know, we knew from the beginning that it was going to run for a set period of time and tell the story. And it really, you know, kind of changed uh, a, a lot of like the way the comics were published. And keep in mind right around now, late 70s, early 80s, this is when the direct sales market is just being invented, right? Like how exactly comics are being distributed. All those places that went under or stopped carrying comics during the DC implosion in 78 and 79 are being replaced by comic book stores that are dedicated to comic books, right? This is, this is what they sell. Sometimes they're in part, you know, they're combined with a hobby shop, they're combined with a game shop, whatever else it might be, but they're not a grocery store. They're not a pharmacy. They actually, they're not, you know, it's not a newsstand. It's somebody who's dedicated to comic books, who understands comic books and is buying comic books with a plan for how they're going to promote and sell. DC embraced that on a level that it took the other companies, you know, once again, they kind of stole a, stole a beat. They stole a, you know, a few steps on their rivals by embracing that very early. And then at the same time, like I said, they were also looking, seeing their characters as, as intellectual property. Uh, they start going to TV. They've got uh, the Wonder Woman TV show is a tremendous success for two or three years in the late 70s. Uh, they're doing Saturday morning cartoons with uh, stuff that they've licensed. You know, they've got Batman and Tarzan uh, as a licensed character. They've got Shazam as a licensed character. Uh, they create Isis as a live action, uh, live action character and put her in a Saturday morning show with the Shazam, Captain Marvel, you know, another callback to one of our previous episodes. Yep. All of that is happening once again, right around that same time, say 77 to 1980. Uh, that's pretty much uh, where, you know, wh where DC is. Right. They are, uh, you know, very successful for what they're doing. Um, and they're kind of had this freedom because Warner Brothers has told them at this point, you know, we don't care if you make a problem. You just keep making cool characters. You keep making cool ideas for this. We'll figure out how to make money out of them doing something other than comics. And that sense of freedom that they have as a publisher is just permeates the entire organization. Um, so it's a very exciting time uh, to be, you know, a DC fan at that point. Things are just really starting to get interesting. And of course, right around then 
is when they start looking to other places to get uh, new ideas from. And one of the places they think of doing that is England. And I think that's where we're going to pick up, you know, with our next episode, uh, with the British invasion of DC Comics. Uh, next time we get together to talk. Absolutely. We'll finish up our history of DC next episode. So thank you all so much for joining us. I've been Steve Tasker, and this has been Darren Watts. Lovely to have you. Have a good night.